I am so glad to see so many faces in this room when you could be out in the sunshine. Thank you for being here um, with the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs this, uh, this Thursday afternoon. This is your weekly reminder to please turn off your cell phones and pagers and portable fax machines. My name is Chelsea Sherbet, and I am thrilled to be your moderator this afternoon for this great topic. This is a, another reminder also that the talk and the Q&A will be recorded, that your lunch conversation will not. <laughs> the recording will be available on SACPA's website. Shaw TV generously records the SACPA presentations um, and will broadcast it several times a day on their channel. Please put at least $12 into the basket in the center of your table for lunch. And if you don't mind, please appointing a banker to make sure that the right amount is in there before the basket is collected for lunch. Okay. Uh, I, I would like to also thank Shaw TV again, um, who does broadcast the SACPA sessions several times each day, uh, and also makes them available for YouTube viewing thereafter. Thank you also to the Lethbridge Herald, and to CKXU FM Radio 88.3, as well as any other media coverage that we get from these events. Thank you Country Kitchen Catering for the always friendly service in advance uh, and thank you to the University of Lethbridge for their support. Before we get going with our, our fabulous presenter today, I will, I will just like to let you know about the session that's coming up next week. I hope you'll be able to join SACPA then as well uh, to welcome Dr. Susan McDaniel who will be presenting on the fabulous topic of Canada, long a refugee haven a model for other countries. Okay. So I think I think now it's time. I'd like to to read you a short bio uh, to welcome Rob Davis, the Lethbridge Police Chief, up here. The topic for today will be drug addiction, crime, and the role of the police service in harm reduction. Rob Davis has served as a police officer for 26 years and was sworn in as the chief of the Lethbridge Police. In, 19, in 2015, Davis began his career with the Haldimand Norfolk Regional Police Service as a special constable while he was completing a sociology degree from McMaster University. Over the years, he rose through the ranks while serving with various agencies in Ontario, including Nishnabi Aski Police, Six Nations Police Service, and Dryden Police Service. Thank you very much for being with us today, Rob, and welcome up to the stage. Good afternoon, everybody. It's my honor and privilege uh, to be here at SACPA. Thank you very much for the invitation to speak. Uh, just to touch on my bio, whenever someone reads my bio, uh, I see a lot of head scratching or what the, where's that? Uh, so I'm a journeyman. I'm quite proud to call myself a journeyman. I, I believe that policing is a trade. It's a craft and, and much like the, the trades, uh, you become a journey, you become a master of the craft through, by, through being a journeyman. And as a result, I've worked for a number of agencies, and like Chelsea said, I started with the Haldeman Norfolk Regional Police, which is in southern Ontario, so the north shore of Lake Erie. We bordered uh, Niagara region. Uh, if any of you are Stomping Tom fans, that great song, Tilsonburg, my back still aches when I hear that word, uh, that was a sort of our western boundary. Uh, but then from there, I went into Aboriginal policing. Uh, they were starting up self-administered Aboriginal policing at the Six Nations Reserve, my home community where I grew up and that's right next to the city of Brantford, Wayne Gretzky's hometown. 
so I t I, when I went there, I remember telling the chief, I'll give you five years. I grew up there. It was a tough place. It was a busy place. And I said, I'll give you five years, and I want to stay closer to 18 uh, because it was uh, very impactful for me to see that we were making a difference in the community. Uh, then from there, I went to Nishnabi Aski Police. And that's the one where people always get confused. Where is that? Uh, where that is, if any of you watched the show Ice Road Truckers the last couple of seasons, when you see in the far northwest corner of Ontario, uh, where they're going into communities like uh, Fort Severn, Fort Hope, uh, uh, Sachigo Lake, uh, I oversaw 21 detachments in those communities. And the only way in or out was by airplane or the ice road in the winter months. And that's really uh, where my eyes were opened to drug addiction, because these were communities only way in, ice road or, or by aircraft. And we were dealing with the oxycodone crisis there. And it, I, I couldn't comprehend this. Coming from southern Ontario, we're in the greater Toronto area, Niagara Falls area, it made sense. Everything's right there. You have roads, you have transit systems. But here I am policing, overseeing 21 communities. The only way in is aircraft or an ice road, yet we had an epidemic of oxycodone coming into the community. and and where you would pay 50 bucks for a pill on the street and say Winnipeg or Thunder Bay, the two nearest major centers, people were paying 200, 250 bucks a pill in those centers. So that really boggled my mind and really opened my eyes to the, the, the drug addiction is not isolated to cities of a certain size or to certain demographics or to anything like that. That when you have a drug epidemic, it, it permeates all of society. Uh, so I also did a stint with the Canadian Police College, seconded to the RCMP, and in that role, uh, we help develop courses to address organized crime because really at the end of the day when you get into the drug part of it it's been my experience that there's always an access to crime property crimes to feed that addiction and as you trace that down you will intersect with organized crime at some level producing the pills shipping the pills having the the infrastructure to make those drugs reach the communities uh, and that was a great experience because i managed to travel the country in that capacity and you know, i would see the same thing repeating itself and really re-emphasize that it doesn't happen. There's no one size city that's immune to drugs and or uh, pervasive for drugs. When you have an epidemic, it's an epidemic. So I'm a journeyman and then from uh, CPC, I wound up back in Southern Ontario and then ultimately to Dryden, Ontario, a little town on the uh, Trans-Canada pulp and paper town. And then I got the call uh, to compete for this job in Lethbridge. And so I came here in January of 2015, and I absolutely love it. And I'm sincere when I say this is the happiest I have been in over 20 years. When I come to work, I love coming to work. I love this city. Not that I was miserable for 20 years, but <laughs> I, I've had a great career. And I've, I've, but I love this city, and I love this police service. And it's because of the community engagement here. Uh, people genuinely care about the city. And I want to share something on the front end, is that this agency amazes me that the men and women, civilian and sworn, that make up the Lethbridge Police Service, uh, we never lose sight of the fact that we're citizens, we're community members, we own property here, we live here in the town, we have kids here, we have friends, family, we pay, play minor sports, we coach minor sports. And that's something that really uh, stuck out to me coming here that just that sense of community within the police service that we are part of the community I just love it because to me I think that gets lost in a lot of police and communities throughout North America is that the, the police become separated from the community and we haven't done that in Lethbridge we've stayed part of the community so as we go through this there's some things I'm going to say that are probably a little controversial and trust me some of our officers probably think the same thing 
When I talk about harm reduction, I know, I'm not naive, I know there are people that are dead against harm reduction. I too was dead against harm reduction at points in my career. But over time, I've, I've seen some things, experienced some things, and really sort of stepped back and evaluated some things that I've opened my mind to different approaches. But I just want you to know that what you're feeling in the room, guarantee we feel as a police service because we're a reflection of you. We are a reflection of this community. So I, I mentioned harm reduction, and before I go any further, I want to explain what I mean by harm reduction because it can mean different things to different people. If I take 10 people and ask you what does harm reduction mean, I will get 10 different answers. And from a police, policing perspective, and broadly speaking, harm reduction is the development and advancement of strategies aimed at reducing negative consequences associated with drug use, which is really twofold, to help individuals impacted by the drug addiction and abuse is the one part of it and probably most importantly and at least in the context of policing is to protect the rest of the society from the behaviors and their actions and so that's where that extrapolates into the property crime that we're experiencing the auto theft the smashing grabs the car prowlings uh, and that those, those parts of it so ultimately if we can address the drug addiction to reduce those then it's a win-win so when we talk harm reduction it, it, it's quite all-encompassing and I want to say again, it took me a long time to accept the concept of harm reduction. With a lot of humility and maybe a little sense of embarrassment, I can tell you the first 50, I was a kid when I got hired. When I started with Holman Norfolk, I was 19 years old. When the rest of my buddies were going backpacking across you know, Australia or Europe, I was putting on a uniform. And so I was very uh, crime and control, crime and punishment. Ron Reagan was my hero, <laughs> like I was, you know, I was very crime and punishment, you know, and Reagan was the champion of the war on drugs. Uh, growing up in southern Ontario, that close to New York State, you know, most of the media we got where I grew up was coming out of Buffalo. I thought it was my cue to dance, but... <laughs> 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 but uh, I was very, very crime and punishment. That's how I was wired. That's how I was raised. There was zero room for harm reduction. If you were... Uh, if you were engaged in a drug culture, I had z zero sympathy, zero sympathy. And like I said, many years later, I stand here with a lot of humility and a little bit of embarrassment that I was that naive, blind, I guess. Uh, but my first 15, 16 years, there was, it was black and white in my world. There was very little room for gray. I was hardcore law and order. Uh, Naivety, like I said, I was a kid. I was 19 years old. Maybe some of it was willful blindness because war on drugs. You know, I was, I was a teenager during that war on drugs, and I believed that. And I still believe to it to some degree. Uh, and I could not differentiate addict and criminal. To me, the two were synonymous, that if you were an addict, you were a criminal. And if you were a criminal, you were probably an addict. Uh, but again, time is, is, has enlightened me. I need to also stress that when I say harm reduction, I've had this thrown at me everywhere I work when you mention harm reduction is, oh, it's a get out of jail free card. And it is not a get out of jail free card. Uh, and I have to stress that, that harm reduction is not a get out of jail free card. What it is, is a mechanism for all of the stakeholders that we have in a great community like this to come together to address the issues, uh, to address the addiction and then address the, the secondary issues that are causing that or, or feeding that addiction like the crime. Uh, a real epiphany for me was about eight years ago. So I'm going to keep it fairly informal. I'm going to share a story with you. 
I was at a conference and the Prince Albert Saskatchewan Police Service at that time had a chief by the name of Dale McPhee. Brilliant man. I love Dale. Dale is just a down-to-earth, calls it the way it is, uh, person. Great cop, uh, but he's also an entrepreneur. So he, he owns a, a franchise of restaurants, fast food restaurants, and so he thinks very business, which is interesting for a public servant to think very business. But Dale's an interesting guy. And so I was at a conference and he was doing this, this system called the hub. I'll call it a system. And what the hub model was, was when you have that addict, just arresting them and arresting them and arresting them is doing nothing. What Dale was pushing was the hub model where police would do the arrest. Maybe we would do the arrest, maybe we would charge, maybe we wouldn't, but we would sort of be a conduit to get the person to wraparound services. I know we've heard it in the media here in Lethbridge lately about wraparound services for people. But the hub model was bringing all of the stakeholders within Prince Albert area together so that when you had the addict criminal and recognizing that the two are not synonymous, if you brought the wraparound services there to address the addiction, to get the person into some sort of treatment, if there was a deficiency in education so that they could get a job, all these things would come to the table to help make the person whole. And it's usually when I say that that I'll see some eye rolling or, oh, here we go, we're going to hug every better, everybody better. And that's not what I'm saying. But really, when you look at the addict, uh, quite often uh, it'll start with a legitimate prescription for a pain situation. And as you take those types of drugs, the opioids for pain, you build a natural tolerance. And so what one pill would have dealt with your sore back, your bad knee, uh, quickly the body will adjust and you'll have to take two pills, three pills, four pills. And so you'll see that, but you'll also see people that start out uh, abusing drugs uh, to escape something. Uh, it could be they're a victim of sexual abuse. It could be they're, who knows, a whole number of underlying factors. We call them the root causes is typically what you'll hear it referred to. But Dale was doing this presentation on the hub model and how they're having great success in Prince Albert. And Prince Albert, if you've ever been there, anybody been to Prince Albert? A tough town, a tough town. They have a lot of addiction issues there. And so what Dale and the police service there were doing is as they were dealing with people, he recognized that the police would typically do this. We would deal with, we'll use a drunk to keep it simple. So somebody drunk on alcohol, arrest them, hold them for six hours so they're relatively sober, kick them loose. Four hours later, we'd get a call that they're drinking again, re-arrest them, hold them for six hours, cut them loose, get a call about four or five later, re-arrest them, hold them until they're relatively sober, cut them loose. And again, like I said, Dale thinks like a business person. He's an entrepreneur. And so he started looking at this. How much money are we wasting? And so, I was, again, I was skeptic. I'm law and order, black and white. There's no gray in Rob's world back then. And so I challenged him a bit, and I said, I don't know about this hub stuff. It sounds good. And I was one of the people that rolled the eyes when he talked about making a person whole and addressing the root causes. And so he challenged me, and he said, okay, think of an addict. Make it an alcoholic or a pill addict or a pothead, you name it. Think about that addict. Now think about how many times you've arrested them in the last year. Think about how many hours you spent, just you alone. Now think about how many hours guarding them. So if you have a guard in your cells, think about the prisoner meals, think about the lights, think about all the things, the, the heating associated with that, to then just kick them out and now you're going to be sitting in the office for an hour doing more paperwork, and then three hours later, you're going to have to go out and rearrest them. And when you start calculating, and so I thought of somebody I had dealt with in my career. I thought, you know what, okay, I'm doing some rough math. And he said, and at the end of the day, after you rearrested them, say, in a month, what was the end result? 
Did you cure them? Did you fix them? That 17th time in jail, they were cured? You know what? And that's where a, a switch came on. That was a real pivotal moment for me to hear Dale tell the group that analogy and describe that. He was absolutely right. Absolutely right. We were, I call it catch and release. Really, was, well, that's what we were doing. We were doing catch and release. So irrespective of what the addiction was, whether it was alcohol, marijuana, pills, we were doing catch and release. And so again, I admire the fact that he said, so all that money, think of all the money, and he used the Prince Albert Saskatchewan. He said, the amount of money they were doing on catch and release, he didn't call it catch and release, but you know, re-arresting. You could take that, make it $20 bills, brand new, fresh ones, straight from the mint so they're compacted. And he said, you could fill an F-150 truck in the box, fill it right full. And he said, and then drive down the Trans-Canada and they'll watch them all blow out because that's the same result. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Because, well, and again, he's, he's a neat guy because he thinks entrepreneur, yet he's a cop. Uh, he's retired now and he works in government, uh, really making the hub model work in Saskatchewan. But he was absolutely right. And that's where the, I had an epiphany moment there that, man, this guy gets it. And so that's where you saw a very black and white, no gray in my world, crime and punishment Rob Davis start to grow. And I, I, I had that epiphany that we are never going to be able to arrest, arrest our way out of it. And then, so this is going back about eight years ago, and some people think this is corny. I loved the show, uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter. If any of you used to watch Dog the Bounty Hunter, I still love them on repeats. <laughs> Little side story is I love Dog the Bounty Hunter. Uh, so that was my thing, you know, when he had his series. And uh, so much so, uh, I was working in Southern Ontario and he was coming to Hamilton, to Hamilton Place. So it's a venue about the size of, say, the NMAX. I had to get tickets to go see Dog the Bounty Hunter. And so on TV, he looks like this great big dude. And then when you got to see him in real life, he's shorter than I am. And I'm only romping, stomping 5'9". But... But in my, in my mind, he's still Dog the Bounty Hunter. But after listening to Dale, I was watching Dog the Bounty Hunter one night, and when you would see Dog, he'd chase the, the, the addict that's hooked on crystal meth, ice he'd call it. And after he'd catch them, you know, he'd, he'd have the bravado there, and the, he'd have his, uh, his mace or his uh, paintball guns. They went to paintball guns. They'd arrest the bad guy, we'll call them. But then he'd always have a conversation. You know, that should have been a sign that he was shorter than I am when every prisoner was like this. But if you watch Dog the Bounty Hunter, he would always have that conversation that, you know what, man, you're a good person, you can get out of this lifestyle, that you're hooked on that ice, it's messing you up, that's not who you are, you weren't born hooked on ice. And so when you would watch that, I have Dale talking about how what we're doing with catch and release isn't working, and Dog would have that talk about, you can get out of this, you can get help, there's help out there, you, when you get out, I'll help you get help. And I know it sounds corny, but really, he was sort of saying the same thing, that you're not born an addict. You can get out of this lifestyle, and he was willing to help you. And when I thought about my own policing perspective, that's what we do in policing for the most part, is that we catch people, we put them in jail, kick them loose, but at no point do we have that, and I call it the dog the bounty hunter conversation. As we've, and as we've been talking about harm reduction in the city of Lethbridge, I always tell that story. To me, the piece is, that is missing is when we catch the addict criminal, incarcerate them, and then release them, nobody has that, because when we release them, they're relatively sober or clean, relatively clean. Nobody has that conversation, the dog, the bounty hunter talk. 
Whereas in the hub model that they were doing in Prince Albert, the police were a conduit for somebody to come in and have that dog the bounty hunter talk with them. And so it makes sense when you look at the wraparound services, the, like in the hub model, that the police are only one piece of it, a very small piece actually, that we will deal with the criminal part of it and we may or may not lay charges. But where we have values, we have the ability to steer the person to the wraparound services, starting with that dog the bounty hunter talk. I know the media is recording this. I'm not sure there's copyright violations referencing dog, but, uh, but it's just the truth. These were the things that connected in my head. Uh, and that's where we're missing. And so I'm really happy here in Lethbridge. I love it here to begin with. But the fact that the stakeholders in this city are acknowledging we need the wraparound services uh, to address the addiction issue, irrespective of its Oxycontin, of its fentanyl, of its alcohol. We need the wraparound services so that when, and we may be that conduit, then when we bring the person into our custody or care, that we're releasing them without a gap, that from when they leave us, there's somebody having that talk, that you weren't born an addict, man. You can get out of this lifestyle. There's ton and that's one thing I love about Lethbridge too. We have such incredible services here. I heard the conversation earlier about for a city this size, Lethbridge has so many things that a city this size really shouldn't have, but we do. And that's kudos to everyone in this room, and we should be extremely proud of that. So given all the stakeholders that we have in this city that genuinely care, both private uh, organizations, publicly funded organizations, uh, non-profit organizations, faith group, faith-based group organizations, given all the organizations that we have in this city that are willing to step up and help people, I'm confident that this city is ripe for harm reduction to be successful. But that was the light bulb moment for me is when Chief McPhee talked about the situation in Prince Albert and putting it into those terms. We're wasting money. And he's right. We might as well fill that back of the truck of $20 bills and drive down the highway because it's going to be the exact same result as if we keep arresting and, and releasing, catch and release, if I will. So I have to stress is that we just we cannot arrest our way out of this. We need to move towards harm reduction. As the old definition, definition of insanity by Einstein, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And I'll be quite honest now, again, with a lot of humility, that was the first 17 years of my career. Is I was all about that catch and release, the arrest. I was proud of that. You know, I think of the one addict when I did my little calculation. I'm almost embarrassed that I didn't see the bigger picture. You know, the guy was a genuine addict. I never saw that. I saw him as the addict criminal. Uh, I couldn't make that differentiation. And don't get me wrong when I say this, there's definitely a need for proactive policing for that crime and punishment part of it. Uh, uh, there are certain crimes that are just heinous and cannot be ignored, and, and there is a need for real policing, old school policing, I like to call it. But the reality is if you go to police services across this country, and I would suggest North America, is we've become society's default babysitter. We get called to things that really are not policing matters. When we look at our own situation here in Lethbridge, really about 20% of the calls we go to are actually crimes. A lot of the other things are more social issues or underlying, related to underlying social issues that we get called for. And as the police service, we don't have the option of saying, no, we have to go. What we've seen with the fentanyl crisis is we get called not, not nearly as much as the uh, EMS, but for the overdoses. Three years ago, nobody was talking about fentanyl overdoses in the city where police were going to have to respond and start doing CPR. I'm proud to have handed out a number of uh, chief's commendations to officers that have literally saved lives from people that have overdosed out in the public. 
but we're at a stage now where police are responding to so many things that really aren't crime. Uh, they're related to underlying social issues and spin-offs of that. There, there's a number of reasons. Uh, it's been my experience in the provinces that I've worked that a number, number of years ago when, when people struggled with mental health issues or had disabilities, they're institutionalized. Not saying if it's right or wrong, uh, I'm not judging those that came before me or governments before me anywhere, but that was reality. I remember growing up, I grew up about an hour away from a large uh, institution in Hamilton. It was a psychiatric institution. When I started policing, that institution shut down. Where did those people wind up? And I know this, it's similar happened here in Alberta. The institution shut down. Where did those people wind up? The streets. Some were fortunate enough to wind up into uh, facilities that had caregivers but really didn't want to be there. A lot went there temporarily and made their way to the streets, and that was my experience in Ontario. When the institution shut down, there was nothing there to help support people. And so that's really another part of harm reduction is acknowledging that when those institutions shut down, that we maybe failed a generation of people uh, that needed support. And so it's moving back to that, being a caring community, understanding that there's underlying issues that may be addiction-related. It could be a mental health issue that's uh, an access to the addiction. But that's what I'm seeing is in the policing perspective, the closing of those institutions without the proper supports or enough supports in place is one issue that uh, also compounded why we're responding to a lot of things that really are not crime in nature. A question I get asked regularly in the last year is about our property crime. Are we seeing a spike in property crime? I know it was in the Calgary Sun a few months ago about they're seeing a spike. It was in the Edmonton News, they're seeing a spike. Uh, talking to the chiefs, I belong to the Alberta Association of Chiefs of Police. We had our spring conference, and I will let you know everybody in Alberta, and I would suggest everybody in Western Canada, has seen a spike in property crime. And there is a direct correlation between that spike in property crime to the addiction issues. And it's cyclical. So what happens is you get the addict, criminal, uh, addict, I'll stick with addict, because I, like I said, I've matured and I realize the two are not one and the same anymore. But when the person becomes the addict, they need to feed that addiction. When you talk to people that have recovered, they will tell you that they need to feed that addiction. Quite often they are on the street or they're not working, and not always. There are a lot of people that are battling addiction that we would all be shocked in this room to know. But the addict that's not employed has to feed the addiction. And so the easiest way is to steal property to then take it to a fence. Uh, the fence is who the person that will take it in and give cash, or if they're set up, they'll take the property in, give the drugs, and then they will take it to another level to get cash. It will start with simple things, smashing your window to take a camera, to take a cell phone, to cigarette lighter. I know, and I know with some of the things that you stole all the vehicles, you're thinking, what? Why would they take that? Because they can get something for it. They might get a dollar, but at least it's a dollar towards that next pill. It may escalate all the way up to stolen vehicles. And that's been my experience here and in other provinces that it can range from the cigarette lighter to a stolen vehicle, brand new Dodge 3500. But there's a direct correlation between the property crime and the addictions. And so, I hope that's not my phone and I apologize if it is because it's way over there. Nope, it's not me. Uh, but there's a definite uh, a nexus between the, the property crime and the addictions. So what we see is the cycle of stealing to feed the, to feed the addiction. They'll go and trade, and trade it or sell it uh, to the fence to get the cash or to get the next pill. 
or, or whatever the commodity is that they're dealing with. And in the worst case, they may escalate to violence, such as muggings or robberies to, to, uh, to get cash for the next, for the next high. We have seen, uh, we haven't seen it like we, there are in other areas, but we have seen an increase in our violence. Uh, with, we've seen an increase in our robberies. A lot of it's small end stuff, but still the robberies. So as the police service, we're very concerned about that. And, and I just have to stress that when I talk about needing a few bucks for a pill, like people always know, well, how much would they need? Five bucks, seven bucks, ten dollars? It can't be that much. Anyway, just to give you some examples, uh, one fentanyl pill presently on the street in Lethbridge is going for around $25. If you're an addict, like I said earlier, that addiction, uh, the tolerance, your, bodily, your body will naturally build a tolerance. So you start as one pill, then that builds to two pills, and as your body continues to build that tolerance, you may be up to four or five pills a day. I've dealt with people in my career that were up to 12 pills a day. And, and I, again, talking to them when they were clean, they said the withdrawals that you go through when you cannot feed that addiction, you will do anything to get the money, to get that pill, to keep that high because it's not worth the pain of the withdrawal. So if you do the math, even if it's four pills a day, there's 100 bucks a day. If you're addicted to where you're 10 pills a day, 250 bucks a day and so that's where when we see the increase in the smash and grabs and the car prowlings and again trust me our officers and I we are frustrated we are frustrated with us uh, personal example I was brand new to the city I'd been here three weeks and we had our a car prowling through our one of our vehicles and it, they stole a camera and I'm ticked to this day because it had in the camera case were a number of the SD cards and on it my father had passed away in 2012 so the last images I have of my father are in that, and I'm to this day I'm angry about it. But I understand why the person did it is to feed their addiction. So I, you know, when when I say the police are frustrated, trust me, a number of our officers have been frustrated by this and continue to be. I, I just want to touch on that part. Is people say the police aren't doing anything about the property crime, and if you've been listening to the news, I'm very proud of what we're doing now. It's called Project Street Sweeper. We have a unit called the Priority Crimes Unit and they deal with property crime so the smash and grabs the stuff out of vehicles right up to the stolen vehicles we have partnered them with our alert unit and you've all heard of our alert unit they've done some great drug busts lately but recognizing that the nexus to that is the property crime we've put the two together and we have them working on project street sweeper and so we're aggressively going after the property crime part of this but also we're getting those people that are uh, dealing with the addictions into the system and part of that is we can ask in our release conditions uh, that or, or when they plead guilty we can hopefully steer them towards some treatment and if nothing else we can hope that there's that dog the bounty hunter talk by one of the stakeholders at the, at, at the table uh, so uh, in a perfect world uh, I hear quite often you need more police out there the pro car prowling, the garage entries, they're so pervasive, we just, from a practical sense, we could never have enough police. We'd have to have a police officer in every corner, that's just not practical. So it's better for us to expend the energy on the investigations like Project Street Sweeper, so that we can deal with it from that angle as a concerted effort between our, our officers and the priority crimes along with the alert members. And we're having great success so far. Uh, just one last point and I'll wrap this up because I'm the last thing that stands between you and lunch and I don't want to be there. <laughs> there may be a stampede. Uh, people ask where do I sit or where do the police service sit with harm reduction. Uh, there's talk about a safe consumption site possibly. Uh, we know there's one coming in Edmonton. Lethbridge is considering that. 
I'm indifferent, but I can tell you what we are doing today does not work. So we need to be open. All of us in this room, we as the police service, the politicians, everybody needs to be open to trying something different because what we're, we are doing presently does not work. We are doing catch and release, but we have tremendous services in this city, tremendous services in this city that if we can bring everybody to the table and have the wraparound services, and if that includes safe consumption site, I'm not saying I'm for or against, I'm saying that we need to be willing to try something different. And if that leads to getting people off the addiction, reduces property crime, keeps our community safe, then I think we need to try it and we have to be open to trying it. And as a police service, we are open to trying it. Because I don't like driving down the Trans-Canada with an F-150 full of 20s watching them blow out the window. And I'm sure none of you do. So, uh, like I said, we need to try it and we all have to have an open mind to try it. In Europe, it's a success. When you look at the safe consumption sites in Europe, they've been successful. And so long as it's done in a measured approach with proper research, and I can tell you the current provincial government is dedicated to having evidence-based research done, so it's not just a whim. They are working hard with Alberta Health uh, to do the evidence-based research so that this will be successful as we try it. But we all have to be willing to explore it, try it. If it doesn't work, at least we can look ourselves in the mirrors of society Said we tried it and back to the drawing board. But what we're doing presently with catch and release does not work and so we need to try different things. And I hope if, if you take nothing else away from my talk today, addict criminal are not one and the same. An addict is not automatically a criminal and a criminal is not automatically an addict. The two are different but quite often can wind up in the same circumstance but they can separate again. So we need to treat the addiction to keep people on the right path. Thank you. Thank you.